Amen. Good morning. I am not Jordan Stonehouse. <laughs> My name is Tom Ellenboss. Uh, if we haven't met, I would love to connect with you afterwards. Uh, I work at Harbor Churches. I'm the senior pastor of the Harbor Churches, and uh, I come here every once in a while when Jordan invites me over, and especially now, like, I don't know if they're in the hospital yet or not, but I know the baby's coming soon. Haven't heard anything from, I was, like, expecting maybe I'd get a text this morning, like, we're in the hospital. Anyway, baby's coming soon, so Jordan planned ahead, and, uh, and I'm here with you this morning. So we've been um, in a long, what we call a long-form walk or series through the book of Genesis, and it's actually multiple series. So we've taken the whole book of Genesis, and we're walking through it over 40 weeks, which you would think is plenty of time, right? Like one book in the Bible, 40 weeks in it, that's a long time, and yet I keep feeling like it's not long enough, uh, because there's so much richness in these stories. There's so much in, uh, in Genesis. Uh, I had the opportunity to be at Camp Geneva. Has anybody here ever been to Camp Geneva before? I had the opportunity to be at Camp Geneva this past week uh, as a chaplain working with the kids and the counselors there. And, uh, and they gave me some Genesis passages to preach from, which was great. Uh, and so we've been you know, in it, and so I had all these interesting insights, but I was able to teach some stuff there that I haven't taught in our churches. And it just keeps, uh, I talk to them a lot about how the Bible is like an onion. And the more you peel it, the more layers there are. It's like the never ending onion and you keep peeling it back. And so there's just not enough time to get through everything. And, uh, and today we're going to hit multiple chapters. So this is why I say there's not enough time. We're going to do chapters 27 to 31 today. And if you've heard me preach before, you're like, what is this going to be, like five hours? <laughs> Mark's nodding his head. Yes, it is. Uh, no, I'll try to uh, make it not so long. Um, but we're talking about forgiveness now. So uh, we've entered into this, uh, this small series on forgiveness, and we're working through uh, kind of the process of forgiveness. So there's a, there's a lot of brokenness in our lives, Right? There's a lot of brokenness in the Bible, too, because it's real people. And so there's all this brokenness that happens in, in there's a lot of family dysfunction that we've been looking at, like uh, probably a lot of family dysfunction in your family and in my family, but also in the families in the Bible. And so we're kind of relating with that and seeing there's all this uh, dysfunction and there is all this hurt and this pain that is caused. And so we're entering into this process of forgiveness and forgiveness is not like a thing that you just do and it's done. It's a, it's a process. Sometimes it's a lifelong process, and sometimes we don't even finish that process. Um, so here's what I'm going to do um, this morning. I'm going um, to say a bunch of words, <laughs> but I'm going to give you three hard truths, and then I'm going to give you three specific things that we can do at the end. Okay. So in the midst of all the words and all the other things I'm going to say, what you want to look for is three hard truths and three things that we can do. And those will come up on the screen and along with a couple other things. Uh, because it's four chapters, I'm not going to read it all. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read kind of, uh, I actually didn't have time to listen to the sermon from last week, so I'm kind of assuming some things. But um, where we were kind of ending in the story the last couple of weeks is this, this break between Jacob and, and Esau. And Jacob steals es- their brothers, uh, their twins, and Jacob uh, steals Esau's birthright. And he swindles his brother. And it, Jacob is uh, known as a swindler. It's kind of in his name. And, and he swindles from his brother, takes the birthright, which birthright just means the inheritance. So in those days, the, the eldest son typically would get everything. 
uh, including the other children, in a sense. Like those other, they would live in like these communities together, and somebody would be the head of that community. And so it's dad, and then it becomes, when dad dies, it becomes older brother, and older brother gets everything. Well, Jacob pretends to be Esau and gets everything, and there's this just powerful moment in which Esau is like begging with his dad. He's like, did you not leave anything for me? Do you not have any blessing for me? And dad's like, nope. I mean, he's heartbroken about it too, but like, no, I don't have anything. So I'm going to, um, I'm going to read kind of the end of that part of the story. And then I'm going to tell you about what happens between chap from there and through it through chapter 31. Okay. So what you might want to do is because I'm not giving you all the scripture this morning, you just might want to go back and read the stories I'm telling you about. I'm going to give you an overview of the stories and then pull out those three hard truths. And then the three things we can do you with me. Okay. So Genesis 27, the end of it ends this way. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Like dad's going to die and I'm going to wait. I'll let dad pass in peace. But when he's done, it's wartime. I'm going after Jacob. No forgiveness there, right? Uh, And you can feel it. I mean, who can blame him? When Rebecca uh, was told that her older son Esau had said, so Re- Rebecca is, um, is working with Jacob in this whole, whole thing with, uh, with Isaac. And, uh, and so mom is like favoring one child, which doesn't feel great, right? When Rebecca was told that her older son Esau had said what he had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. The other piece that's in that story that happens right at the end there is that um, Rebecca is not happy. Now, Rebecca helped Jacob with this whole deal. She favored Jacob and she helped him steal. Uh, And sometimes we think if we do this thing and we get what we want, we're going to be happy. But Rebecca's not happy. And she's worried that he's going to marry somebody that's not a part of their clan. And so she, she's worried he's going to get killed by his brother. She's worried he's going to marry the wrong person, which never happens with parents, right? We never worry about who our kids are going to marry. Um, and then that's, I'm being ironic. Anyway, uh, facetious, whatever the word is. Um, and so she sends him off to find her family, specifically Laban, her brother, um, and wants him to find someone to marry there. Okay. So let me now rehearse to you what happens in the story. Jacob takes off. Esau's mad. Rebecca's unhappy. Okay. So this thing, surprise, surprise, when we, when we hurt other people and we do things that are selfish for ourselves, it doesn't always go well. Right. So then here's what happened. Jacob, uh, is on his way to Laban and he, he, he sleeps. And he has this amazing dream in which he encounters God, uh, made famous by Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven. There's the Stairway to Heaven moment. You did, I don't know if maybe you didn't make that connection before, but anyway. Um, j- j- I share weird things. Um, Jacob has this interaction with God. He has a powerful, like maybe you've had one of those moments where you, where you encounter God and, and he, he encounters God. And then out of that dream that he has this encounter with God, he makes some promises to God. He says, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to give you 10% of everything I have. Um, And if you're reading it, you're kind of like, maybe he actually has encountered God and something will change in his heart and he'll go back and repent to Esau. 
But no, he doesn't do that. So there's this encounter with God, but Jacob doesn't really change. Jacob continues on and he goes to find Laban and he does what Jacob is good at. And we'll see this later in the story too. Jacob runs away. He keeps running because he did something wrong. Instead of facing it, Jacob runs and he goes east and he finds his uncle Laban and there he meets Rachel. And it's one of those moments, you know, those like fall in love moments immediately, like love is first sight. It's at this well and Jacob meets Rachel and he falls in love. And he's like, how do I marry Rachel? And Laban says, it's easy. You just have to work for me for seven years and then you can have Rachel. Now you thought that like talking to your father-in-law was difficult, like future father-in-law. This one, he's like seven years. So, so Jacob's like, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm in love with her. I'm going to do it. So he works for Laban for seven years. And then Laban does this little switcheroo thing. He's got another daughter named Leah. And Leah is known as one with a lazy eye, whatever that means. Uh, it probably means she's not as good looking as her sister, Rachel. And, uh, and Jacob doesn't fall in love with her. Um, she's the eldest though. And so uh, Laban does this switcheroo in which he gives Leah to Jacob and her sister instead of Rachel. And this happens now. Don't ask me the question like, how much wine do you have to drink before you realize you're with the sister and not the wife? It's a jacked up story, right? But Jacob wakes up and he realizes he's not with Rachel and he's been swindled. Sound familiar? Right? Remember, Jacob is the one who pretended to be Esau to his father. Something is happening to Jacob that is he's done to other people. So he ends up, uh, Laban's like, well, this is just what we do. You know, like we don't give the younger one before the older one. So you have to marry the older one first. If you want Rachel, you got to work another seven years, right? So now it's 14 years that he's going to work to, to marry Rachel. So he does that. He works another seven years for her hand and he begins to have children with Leah. Okay. So again, I used the word jacked up. It's a bit jacked up. It's a bit, dis- not a bit, it's way dysfunctional, Right. Because now he's married to Leah, he has children with Leah, and then he also marries the sister. And there's not going to be any problem with this, right? Yeah, it's, it's messed up. There, there's going to be problems. So he has children with Leah, that's chapter 29. And then in chapter 30, Rachel starts to be upset. Can you guess why? Right? There's obviously jealousy and rivalry between the sisters. Leah has been able to have children. Rachel has not been able to have children. And so uh, guess what Rachel does? Now, if you've been with us in Genesis, you kind of know there's this weird family history. Like we can't have kids. So how about, how about uh, you be with my slave and then have a child with my slave? Because that's going to go well, right? Remember Sarah does that with Hagar and Ishmael and... Uh, Again, we're in this long form series. So if you're new here, like, I'm sorry, we're covering a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm not sorry because I want to invite you into the story, right? It might take you a little bit to get into the story with us, but please get into it with us. But there's this, so there's this weird history. So, uh, so Leah gives her slave um, to Jacob. Her name is uh, Zilpah, I think. Um, and, and he has more children with her. Um, Then Leah gets pregnant again and has two more children. And Rachel now, imagine how Rachel's feeling, right? Because she's like, not only has Leah had children with Jacob, my husband, but also 
Leah's slave has had children. So Rachel comes up with a brilliant idea and she says, I have a slave too. This is getting really bad, isn't it? I mean, you thought your family was dysfunctional. This is really dysfunctional, right? So she gets her slave and ends up, her slave ends up having two more children. Um, And then eventually... Rachel gets pregnant and has a child. Have you heard of the, uh, the, the, 12, nation, or the 12 nations of Israel? Right? The, this is where the 12 come from. Right? They don't come from one person. Well, Jacob, I guess. Right? But Jacob basically has, it's not four wives, two wives and two slaves and 12 children. Um, now, that's, that's a family. That's an interesting, difficult family. Um, now, Jacob realizes that his family's getting pretty big here and he's still working for Laban. And he feels, still feels like a slave for Laban. And he decides, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go and I'm going to set off on my own. I'm going to do my own thing with my huge family, right? Laban, so it is true. Here's an interesting piece of the story. God is with Jacob and God is blessing Jacob, even though he's made a lot of mistakes in his life. And Laban realizes that there's this blessing on Jacob. And so Laban doesn't want Jacob to leave. And he says, I want you to stay. Please stay. Because if you leave, maybe the blessing of the Lord will leave. And so Jacob decides, well, okay, I'll stay. But Jacob, what does Jacob's name mean again? Anybody remember? It means one who grabs at the heel, um, which in their culture meant he's a swindler. He's a manipulator. Remember, he manipulated the inheritance from Esau. Now he's been manipulated by Laban over these years. Um, now he's got this big family and he wants to get out on his own. He wants to be wealthy. He wants to be, he wants to leave the house and be on his own. Laban wants him to stay. He's trying to work that out. And so Jacob creates this elaborate plan to manipulate the flocks so that he will actually get all the benefits of the flocks producing. And he, he once again swindles Laban. After a while, Laban starts to figure out, okay, Jacob's swindling me again. And Jacob realizes he's in trouble again. So Jacob, true to form, remember when Esau's mad at him, what does he do? Does he go confront Esau and does he confess his sins and does he own up to it? No, he runs, right? So Jacob is not only a healer and a swindler, Jacob is a runner. So now there's conflict again with Laban. And he decides, I'm out, I'm going to run. So kind of under the cover of night, he gets all of his family and they decide that they're going to take off. And so they leave. Laban realizes they've taken off and he goes after him. And finally, Laban catches up with him. I told you this is a long story. This is four chapters. Are you following me in the story so far? Okay. Somebody should make a movie of this, right? It's crazy. Laban goes after Jacob because he's like, now my son-in-law has stolen from me. Like he's become rich under me. He's taken both of my daughters. He's taken all of my flocks. And now he's just going to take him and leave. So Laban goes after him and then catches him eventually. And, and, and then there's this argument. This is in chapter 31. Okay, so we're coming to the end of this. He catches him and he's angry, right? And they end up in this argument. And here, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you my version of the argument, okay? It's a little bit different than this, but it's close. Uh, It goes like this. Laban, uh, you left without saying goodbye. Jacob, you didn't pay me fair wages. Laban, I didn't even get to hug my grandkids. Jacob, he doesn't really say that, but anyway, feels like that. Jacob, 
uh, haven't I created wealth for you for 20 years? And didn't you make me work for 14 years for both of your daughters? Laban, you stole from me. Jacob, you stole from me. Do you see what's going on here? Have you ever been in an argument with someone where you're like, but you, but you, but you, but you, but are any of you married? (laughs) Have you ever been in one of these, right? Like, but you, oh, but you first. Oh, but before that, you, but before that, you. This is exactly what's going on in Laban and Jacob's life, right? Like they are so different from us in some ways culturally, but so similar to us, right? They're human beings just like us and families just like ours and relationships just like ours. The crazy thing is though in this story, they're both right and they're both wrong. They both have legitimate reasons to be upset with each other. They've both caused pain to the other person. They disagree on the degree of that, like what you did was worse than what I did, right? And you've never said that in a relationship, right? Yeah, I know I did that, but you know what you did, it was worse. But when you did this, right? They disagree on who's more at fault, but they both have legitimate gripes. And then here's what happens at the very end of 31. Is they go, all right, fine, we're not going to resolve this. Let's agree to go our separate ways. I'll go this way, you go that way, we'll leave each other alone. And they go, okay, that sounds good. Make a deal. They shake on it. They don't shake on it. They do the, the Old Testament way of doing this. They, they put up a big pillar um, and they, it's a monument to the agreement that they've made. Now you might look at that and go like, okay, well, they resolved it, right? No, they didn't. There's, n- there's no reconciliation. There's no resolving. Okay, that's the story. You got the story? Got the story? Okay, I'm going to come back to it. I'm going to take a little departure for, from it for a minute because I want to talk about us. I want to ask you a question. Do you feel free? Do you feel free? Like, don't answer out loud. Well, unless you really want to, but do you feel free? I grew up, um, I grew up in a church. I grew up singing a song. One of my favorite songs was a song called, Oh, Four Thousand Tongues to Sing. Some of you who also grew up in the church will know that song. And it has this line. It's talking about God. And it says this, he, God, breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood avails for me. So my question again, do you feel free? He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. See, one of the things that I've experienced is that even though my sin has been canceled and the guilt of my sin has been canceled and the debt of my sin has been paid for by the blood of Jesus, I still often don't feel free from my sin. You feel that? I've always wrestled with that line in the song. He breaks the power of canceled sin. And yet I find that in my life, sin still has some power on me. Still has, sin still has some power to bind me. Sin still keeps me a prisoner to my idiotic ways of living. I'll just put it that way. Okay, you ready for hard truth number one? Hard truth number one is this. Even though we are released from the guilt of sin, sin ripples in our lives. Even though 
we are released from the guilt of sin, sin still rip, ripples. See, freedom isn't an overnight deal. It's, it's what makes addiction so difficult to get through, right? Because uh, when you're addicted to something, you go back to it even when you don't want to. Sin is like a black mold. <laughs> Once you get it, even when you clean it, sometimes it continues to come back until over a period of time you can finally get rid of it. An interesting thing about the Bible is that, that uh, sin tends not to be situational. Like I just sinned in that moment. Sin tends to follow us. Jacob runs away, right? But, but guess what follows him in the story? His sin follows him. His dysfunction follows him. His family dysfunction follows him. God promises to heal us by the power of his Holy Spirit. But that's not immediate oftentimes. Sometimes it is. Sometimes, and I've had this in my life and I've seen in other people's lives, sometimes there's there's an immediate healing that happens and that sin is gone. And there are other times when that sin still has a grip on us, even though our guilt has been forgiven, the power of sin in our lives sometimes holds on. And here's the conundrum is you can be in a relationship with God. You can have a powerful relationship with God. You can have an encounter with God where you see the stairway of heaven and God communicates with you directly like Jacob. And you can make commitments to God and you can say that you'll give all of this in your life to God and sin can still have a grip on your life. You see, in in this moment with Jacob, God has spoken to him. God has met him. He's met God. He's made promises. But Jacob still has some character things to work through. Jacob still has some sinful patterns in his life. Sometimes, um, even though we're released from the guilt of sin, sin ripples in our lives. Okay, hard truth number two. Our sins not only have consequences for us, but the ripple effects can last generations. This is the bad news today. Not only do your sins that have a grip on you hold you prisoner, but they can also become captives for generations after you. Let me read you, uh, you I know what the Ten Commandments are, right? Let me read you part of the Ten Commandments, okay? This is from Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of what? Slavery. Now, because I've taken you out of that, right? I've freed you from that. I've freed you from that captivity. He says this, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who keep my commandments. Does that make you stumble a little bit when you read it? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you telling me that I'm being punished for my great-great-grandfather's sins? How is that fair? How is that fair? And I wonder a little bit about that word punishment. Because I don't know that God is necessarily punishing us for, because of the guilt of the great-great-grandfathers. I think what God is saying is like, sin ripples down the generations. And the effects of your sin today will impact 
your great-great-grandchildren. Now, if that's not a gut punch this morning, I don't know what is. You can have a powerful relationship with God. He can speak to you face-to-face, and you can make commitments to him, but sin ripples. A relationship with God doesn't mean that you're free from sinning anymore. And it doesn't mean that you've conquered some of those addictions or that the Holy Spirit has yet transformed your character into being the person of Jesus Christ or being like him. And so when you continue to sin, you continue to have ripples in your life and ripples that go down the generations. I've been fascinated with this idea for a while, trying to think about the curses, which maybe we think about the consequences rather than curses of Adam and Eve and Cain and Noah and Abram and Jacob and David and all those things that have been passed on to us. If you study theology, you hear about like, you hear, you know, that there's this original sin that we're culpable for. We're responsible for the original sin of Adam. And you're like, that's not fair. Well, it's because sin ripples. And you you will impact generations with your life. The truth is that we do pass things on to our kids and to their kids, and sin ripples over generations. And not only do consequences pass from generation to generation, our values do as well, right? So there's good things and there's bad things. Each family has a culture. Each family has an environment in which we're born. Your family culture is different than my family culture, right? Your family sins are different than my family sins. The rights and wrongs that you learned in your family, like you may have had something in your family that it was okay or right or normal, and it's just not okay. And that's a part of your family culture. And that, that culture is passed on from generation to generation. I recently spoke to a woman um, who found herself criticizing everything her children did. It was like a wake-up call to her. She's like, oh, I realize, like, I, my kids now have kids. She's, she's at that age. And she's like, I'm criticizing how they're parenting. And, like, I'm just constantly criticizing them. And it just was natural for her. She's like, it's so easy for me. Nothing they did seemed to be enough. They could always do better. And it went on and on and on for years. And suddenly she awoke to it. After like 20 some years of parenting, she realized that she had never been good enough for her dad. Her dad was always criticizing her. Nothing was ever good enough. She could always be better. That's how generational sin works, right? Her dad told her she wasn't good enough. So she told her kids they weren't good enough. And guess what's probably going to happen to the next generation? That's, I think, what God is talking about when he says that the, the sin, when we turn away from God, those sins, they ripple to the third and fourth and probably further generations. So each of us has been shaped in a family context. Each of us has generational sin in our families. And I just want you to think for a moment about your family. What are some of the things that are in your family? Here's a list. It's not a comprehensive list, but here are some of the things I've seen passed on through generations. Anger, materialism, criticism, as I've just talked about, perfectionism, uh, dysfunctional sexuality, holding grudges, gossiping, controlling, withdrawing emotionally, and lying, 
There's all kinds more, I'm sure. But every family has generational sin. So, so bad news. The good news is you're in good company. <laughs> because this is true for all of us. Uh, I remember a conversation with my mom years ago. And, and, and we were talking about dysfunctional families. And I'm like, yeah, we're dysfunctional. She was like, what? I said, yeah, we're a dysfunctional family. And she said, we are? I said, mom, every family is dysfunctional. Yours is, mine is, just in different ways. If you were to go to a psychologist, they would talk to you about family systems theory. Each family has a system, which is kind of a new philosophical or psychiatric idea, but it's as old as the scriptures, right? The scriptures tell you that there are family systems that ripple, that echo through the generations. There's a guy named Pete Schizero who wrote a book called The uh, Emotionally Healthy Church, and I'm going to read a quote to you from him. He says this, In, emo- in emotionally healthy churches... Emotionally healthy people, we'll say, right? People understand how their past affects their present ability to love Christ and others. They've realized from scripture and life that an intricate, complex relationship exists between the kind of person they are today and their past. Numerous external forces may shape us, but the family we've grown up in is the primary and except in rare instances, the most powerful system that will shape and influence who we are. It's just a true thing, right? You've been shaped in great ways and probably in sinful ways. Let me, let me tell you, we've been, through, we've been going through Genesis. For those who have been here, let me, let me just show you a little more of the family dysfunction that, that ripples here in Jacob's family. Remember Sarah, Abraham's wife? Sarah doesn't get pregnant either. So we see her take matters into her own hands, having her husband sleep with her slaves so that she can have his child, Hagar. And now we see that rippling, right? Rebecca, Isaac's wife, Jacob's mom, takes matters into her own hands, decides she's not going to wait for God, decides that she has a better idea than God, and she helps Jacob swindle her own husband so that her favorite child can be blessed. How does Jacob become a swindler? Mom's pretty good at it. Jacob takes things into his own hands, as we've seen, deceiving his father, stealing from his brother, and then stealing from his uncle. Laban, his uncle, who happens to be Rebecca's brother, who's also a really good swindler, right? There's some family, family resemblance here. He swindles Jacob over and over and over, right? Man, this family's got stuff, doesn't it? Rachel... I didn't even tell you this part of the story. Rachel, Laban's daughter, now Jacob's, one of Jacob's wives, when they run away, Laban comes after him. He's like, hey, you stole a bunch of my stuff. Jacob's like, I didn't, I took just the stuff I worked for. I didn't steal anything. Rachel's like, shh, I got all the stuff hidden in my tent. (laughs) I took all the idols and the gold. Right? Where did Rachel learn that from? And if Laban's mad about it, who should he be mad at? Rachel or himself? It's like family feud or family of deceivers and everyone's out for themselves and everyone's swindling everybody and the dysfunction is there and it's real and it, it's difficult. And interestingly, God is still with them and God still blesses them even there in the midst of this sin. But, but they, they haven't been working on themselves, right? Paul talks about in Romans about being transformed by the renewing of our mind. That transformation hasn't quite happened yet in their lives. 
So your, your family has, uh, let's use a different word. Your family has a legacy. Your family has a legacy that's really positive and really negative. Especially if you've been given a, a legacy of faith and of understanding of who God is. Like you have, a, you have a great legacy of faith. And unfortunately that's mixed with a legacy of sin. Um, let, me get back, let me just go back to the end of that story a minute. Um, because this will matter for our conclusion. But notice in chapter 31 when I told you, I mean, we didn't pull it open, but Laban and Jacob are, are doing this tit for tat thing, right? You're worse than I am. You did this. You did this. I did this. You know, I didn't do anything wrong. You did this. Notice what's not there. There's no self-acknowledgement of wrongdoing. There's no commitment to change. There's no forgiveness. There's no reconciliation. They both dig in their heels, believing that they are Right? They just agree to go separate ways. So let me share a couple of implications. I'll give you the last thing and then we'll, we'll end. Um, a couple of implications of what I've told you so far. First of all, the legacy you have received has had a proud, profound impact on who you are. The legacy you have received has had a profound impact on who you are. Let's just be a little different than Jacob and leave in a minute. And let's just acknowledge that. Let's just say, man, I do this because I've inherited it from my family. Positive and negative ways. That's one of the implications. The second implication is, uh, is related to it. It's a little bit of its obverse. Who you are has a profound impact on the legacy you leave. And the people around you, your friends, your kids, uh, your relationships, you will leave a legacy in them just like a legacy was left in you. Those are some of the implications of uh, what we're talking about here. You will pass on some of your sins to future generations. You just will. Just like you've received them. So here's the hard truth number three, which goes along with that, is this. I am both a victim and a perpetrator. You didn't choose the family you were going to be in, right? And you received from them a legacy that was both positive and negative. You're you're a victim of some things. But you're also a perpetrator because you make decisions as you continue. Listen to Schizero again. He says, unless we grasp the power of the past on who we are in the present, we will inevitably replicate those patterns in relationships inside and outside the church. So it's true, you've inherited some of these things, but here's the other truth. You don't have to take them. You have choices. Sarah had a choice to trust God, she didn't. Rebecca had a choice to trust God, she didn't. Jacob had a choice to live as the second born and trust God, and he didn't. Laban had a choice, and he didn't take it. You are not guilty for what's been given to you, but you do have a choice about it. You can turn away from generational sin. You can, through the power of the Holy Spirit, see the power of canceled sin be broken in your life. I want you to hear that this morning. You do not have to walk in the footsteps of your forefathers in the sins that they have given to you, whatever they are. But what it takes is some self-awareness. It takes some confession of sin and saying, God... Man, my family is messed up. 
I love them. I love them. But man, there's some messed up stuff. And I want to stop the cycle of generations. I want to follow you. I want to find freedom in you. I want to see the power of canceled sin broken in my life. This morning, I want you to ask yourself, what are the things that you need to see broken uh, in your life? Um, The first thing that you have to do is you have to face it. Okay, these are the three applications I'm going to give you now. Give you three hard truths. Let me give you some action. First one is you got to face it. I've talked about it all morning now. You've got to face it. Only you can do that. Only you can say, what have I inherited? What have I taken with me? What baggage have I decided to take on from my family of origin or the people who poured into me? Uh, what have I taken on? You have to face it. Psalm 79 says this, uh, verses 8 and 9. Do not hold against us the sins of the fathers. God, don't, don't hold the sins of the fathers against us. May your mercy come quickly to meet us, for we are in desperate need. Help us, O oh God, our Savior, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. God, I realize I come from a family that's broken like every other one in sin. Help me to see it. Help me to face it. Help me to pay attention to what's going on here. Um, secondly, now after you face it, ask for healing. Just like the psalm I just read to you, ask for healing. God, can you imagine, what would have happened if Jacob had come out of that prayer and he had said, God, not only am I going to give you 10% of my income, but God, actually, I'm going to face my sin. I'm going to face my family sin. I'm actually going to go back. I'm going to face Esau. Now, actually, that will come back because that'll happen in the next couple weeks. We'll see Jacob and Esau. Esau wants to kill Jacob, remember? Well, they're going to come face to face. Super exciting. Stay tuned, part two. But he doesn't do that here, and he doesn't want to do that. What would have happened if Jacob had gone, hey, I'm going to go back and I'm going to confess my sins. Ask for healing. Um, this is Schizero again. He says, we all come into the family of Jesus with broken bones, wounds, and legs shot up from the war of life. God's intention is to heal our brokenness and patch up our wounds. But the key is you have to face it and you have to want it. And then the third thing, the last thing, ask for help. Ask for help. Cannot say this strongly enough. You cannot do this work on your own. You can't. That's why God gave you this church. That's why God gave you friends who are trying to follow Jesus too. It's why God gave us the body of Christ because we're supposed to help each other. It's why God gave you a good therapist to go to and a good pastor to talk to and a good small group to be a part of so that you can say, please pray with me because I find myself falling into the same sinful patterns of my family and I don't want to give that to my children or to my friends or anybody else around me. I want sin to stop rippling in my life and rippling in the people around me. God, please heal me. And friends, please help me. And my prayer for you is that you will do that for each other. That you will be honest. Hey, guess what? Like, these are my sins. These are the things that I really struggle with. I love Jesus. I've had an encounter with him. And I still am addicted to these behaviors that are sinful. Please help me to see the power of canceled sin happening in my life and the restoration that comes for it. Would you pray with me? God, you have been good to us. 
I am overwhelmed every time I read the scriptures and I see how messed up we are. Um, But I am thankful to you that we are not alone in that. Um, I stand up here on the stage this morning as a pastor and my life is just as messed up as anybody else's. And so God, we confess to you this morning that we, we have inherited the sins of our fathers and we've made some up of our own too. And God, we ask that you would recognize the damage that those sins are doing to the people around us and to the generations that follow us. And we ask, God, that you would cancel the power of sin in our lives, that you would not only forgive us for our sins and the pay, that you've paid the, recognize that you've paid the debt of our sin, but God, would your, by your Holy Spirit, would you transform our character and our lives so that we can be the people you've asked us to be. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.